If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Eric Topol. He is the author of the book Deep Medicine, and he talks about how the power of artificial intelligence can make medicine better for all humans by freeing physicians from the task that interfere with human connection. He holds um, a degree with highest distinction in the study of biomedicine from the University of Virginia, and he holds an MD uh, with an honor field of the study of medicine from University of Rochester. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks very much, Byron. Tell me a little bit about your background and how did you, obviously with, uh, with the medicine background, first get into AI and, and see its um, potential for transforming the medical industry? Well, uh, it's been uh, about a dozen years ago when I started this Scripps Research Translational Institute, which was predicated on understanding human beings at a deep level. Uh, and that was also involving, of course, digital wearable sensors. And so very quickly, we saw that there was no shortage of data being generated for each person, whether it's through different sensors or a genome or electronic health records or images. And it became clear that we needed a rescue for dealing with all this data. And uh, clearly, AI is, is emerging uh, to, to fulfill that very objective. And so what do you mean you set out to kind of understand uh, humans? Like, is that psychology and sociology and physiology? And is it all of that? Or because or, that's a pretty tall order. I guess you got well, to work in history and anthropology yeah. and like what? what? Not, yeah, not quite as uh, diverse as your mapping, but rather the medical essence of a person. That would be the biologic layers like DNA, proteins, the microbiome, the physiologic through sensors layer, the anatomy through scans, and then the the um, environment. You can quantify now through sensors as well as. Um, the, the traditional medical information. So we're not talking about anthropology or psychology as much as we're talking about what makes a person tick. Uh, back, if you go to 2000, 2003, when the genome was announced, you know, the first human genome draft, the thought was, oh, well, the DNA is going to have all the operating instructions. And I, I've never thought that to be the case. That in fact, we need much more information about a person, this whole, uh, whole concept of individualized medicine, being able to match up uh, that the knowledge of a person with prevention or better management of conditions or everything we do or for screening and medications and making diagnoses, everything we do in medicine by having a deeper understanding of each person. And how, where are we on that journey? I mean, if you go back to um, Hippocrates, to now, because I'm always struck by how much we don't know. I, I, you know, you can start with the brain and how a thought is encoded and what gives rise to the mind. And, you know, we, we used to think the neurons were the story and then it's the glial cells and then it's something else. 
I read recently, we don't really even know how the body maintains its body temperature. Like how does it, how does it always keep us at 98.6? And so where are we in terms of our understanding of what you're trying to, are we still like in the era of stone knives and bear skins? <laughs> no, no, we're not. We're making tremendous headway. Uh, I think it was a remarkable study uh, done on uh, Scott and R. Kelly, the, the astronauts, where they compared Scott, these are identical twins, who was out in space at the International Space Station. And every one of these things that we just discussed, every layer was essentially defined. The deepest phenotyping, what we call it, uh, of human beings in history. Uh, and then the, the analysis of what, what was the hit uh, of being in space for a year on Scott. And it was quite a bit of effect on genes and chromosomes and on his cognition, uh, a significant impairment. So we can do this now. We haven't done it at scale. I mean, we probably now have done genome sequences of a million or so people, but it's just starting to come together to, to answer your question, Byron, that we can do each of these. We can do a, a in-depth uh, probe of a person's gut microbiome. Uh, we can understand things that we never could before. Integrating it all for each human being is, is another task that, that is going to require AI because no human being can assimilate all this data. Yeah, you know, I'm, I always wonder, will these systems give us more understanding of how things work? And, and hear me out here, because I think about the antidepressant Wellbutrin, which, while it was being studied, um, some people remarked, you know, I don't seem to crave smoking as much. And they're like, Really? And so they do studies and they say, wow, this is really good for smoking cessation. Let's call it Zyban and sell it. And it's like, it's more like we get things out of the data that we don't necessarily understand, but it isn't necessarily important that we understand them, right? We just need to know that, that it worked. We don't know necessarily how an aspirin uh, causes, uh, stops pain, but it's enough to know that it does and it doesn't seem to have... Uh, terrible side effects. So do you think these sorts of systems are giving us true understanding at like a systems level of what a human being is, or are they giving us just a high degree of predictive ability? Well, it, there isn't one simple answer. It, it, it depends on, on uh, the particular focus. In some areas, we're, we're making significant progress across the board, and others, we're still at a pretty rudimentary state. You know, the, the one thing people are always curious about, of course, is longevity. And, and while the number of people that make it to 100, the percent of people that make it to 100 goes up every year, you know, the number of people who make it to 125 is stuck at zero forever, seeming, I mean, so far. So do you think the kinds of technology you're studying are going to let us, and, and I'm not even talking about, quote unquote, curing death, but just break past 125 or 150 for a few people? It's possible. I mean, I'm somewhat skeptical about the ability for the science of aging to have a measurable impact on extending lifespan. 
Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. It, there are a lot of people who are optimistic that we'll be able to change that ceiling that you referred to of 120 and increase the number of people who are centenarians and beyond. That's really uh, well um, being pursued, but it, it's speculative. Uh, we are understanding the aging process, this, that, that science, far better than ever before. And there's lots of ideas that are being pursued, but so far, uh, I haven't seen anything that is really making uh, any substantive difference. Yeah, because it always seems like if you ask the people that, that, that live a really long time, like, why did you, did you live a long time? You know, they always have something like, I ate a stick of butter every night or something that's completely counterintuitive. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, yeah, we we've seen that. We've had people swear that it was the Twinkies that did it, or you know, we've had people. We have a big elderly program of people who are 85 uh, average, uh, 90, but 85 and above who've never been sick, and we've had people in that cohort that smoke two packs of cigarettes a day still at age 99. So there are some genetic uh, underpinnings that uh, allow people that, uh, you know, without any drugs, environmental effects, the things that we don't understand yet that uh, give a Teflon coating to some people, not just for lifespan, but I think most people would agree it's actually health span, the number of years that you can extend where a person is perfectly healthy without any significant chronic conditions. That's the real goal, not just to be able to say you live to some ripe old age, but you had, you know, many different serious conditions and and, and including um, impairment of your cognition. Absolutely. Now you, there's a sentence that, um, that goes along with your book, which presumably you've, if you didn't write, you've at least seen before. And it says, AI will cre- create space for the real healing that takes place between a doctor who can listen and a patient who needs to be heard. That's a highly personal kind of, statement and yet you're saying ai creates that space can you elaborate on that well well, first let me clear up i wrote the book so i don't know what you're alluding to no i meant it was a just a line that's describing the book oh okay all right yeah i mean i i yeah that line is uh about the story that um this is a highly um right now uh um compromise situation where doctors are not really present with patients because they're so busy typing on keyboards, not being able to get their arms around the data and all sorts of saddle with data clerk and administrative tasks. We need to get back to where um, these two human beings, patient and doctor, come together, where the trust is restored, the care, the empathy, communication, all the aspects that are critical for good medicine, which have been lost along the way. And we have the realistic opportunity uh, with AI uh, to be able to get there because we can liberate from keyboards. We can have that data assimilated, keyed up for the doctor. More patients will generate their own data and have algorithmic support. So that'll decompress the doctor's role in, in for many non-serious conditions. So there's many different routes to get to a far better plane of human connection than we have today. I read one thing that said that um, the average amount of time a patient gets to explain what's wrong with them before a doctor interrupts with a question is 15 seconds, which blows my mind because that would imply that half of them are less than that. Um, 
so that's the kind of thing you're hoping that we we kind of have can can have the the space to take a breath and just figure out what's going on is that right yeah well that's part of the problem is we don't even listen to a patient's story which often will give the diagnosis or or give the color of what's really wrong uh, or what's what's working or what isn't working but the interruptions occur quickly and frequently and that's part of the compromised uh, uh, way that medicine is practiced today. That has to change. We have to get back to the way it used to be when a patient had the ability. There was time to tell their story and there was time to be able to really cue in to what's going on with a, with a person. So this is what's missing today in medicine and we have right now the greatest chance perhaps ever, but certainly for the foreseeable future, of turning back time because four decades ago or longer, there was a precious relationship and there was a uh, lack of uh, this problem of uh, inadequate time, inadequate uh, context, presence, and trust. There was the real chance to uh, listen and not interrupt. And, you know, we got to get back to that. So we're nowhere near there now, but do you envision a time when... Um the doctor isn't even present. Like I can just talk to my device for 15 minutes and it can ask me all kinds of things like, do your eyes water when you eat potato chips and all these other things and, and figure it out? Like, will we eventually get to that point? Well, I, I think it's a priority that we do far better. Uh, I don't know that we want to emphasize things that are uh, like what you're asking. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, getting the critical features, uh, uh, the critical information is, is paramount. And uh, it's not being done well today. I just think of all the parts in the world where they don't even have kind of the luxury of having a doctor present. And it would be great as, if the smartphone were, were good enough that it could do a pretty good job without actually having a, a human physician present. Right. Well, okay. So for that, yes. Um, you know, they're already today in many parts around the world, including remote and places that are uh, non-developed countries, we see the emergence of uh, chatbots and uh, smartphone connects and, you know, all sorts of technology that's starting to symptom checkers, uh, companies like Babylon Health and Ada and many others. So it's starting what you're bringing up, Byron. Um, it's it's short on validation, but getting increased uh, uptake. Uh, Theoretically, though, this is a big advantage of this, which is the ability to uh, reach uh, a lot of people in uh, rural uh, areas and underdeveloped areas that um, could really bridge the divide that exists today, where there's tremendous inequities uh, we have that opportunity. I mean, AI could make that worse by only being uh, available to people who are relatively affluent, or it could actually be a great force for leveling this. So uh, obviously, I'm hope, ho- hoping for the latter. You know, it seems to me, well, AIs are only as good as the data we feed them. And it would seem to me that in the medical world, which, as you say, it by its nature generates an enormous amount of data. Um, we're kind of in our own way there. I go to a doctor today um, and they still have paper files. And if they don't, um, if I need to be sent somewhere else, 
you know, there's a HIPAA form and then I have to get my records transferred over. And then there's, you know, I don't kind of own my records and they're not in some format that I can just hand a flash drive to, to somebody uh, and then brrr, they know everything. So I, 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 I suspect I know why we're not there, but I would love to know your thoughts on that. And do you think, isn't that a critical part of having AI be able to do all the things we want it to do, to have the data normalized and uh, available across large groups of people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we don't even know what normal blood pressure is now. I mean, you know, we never captured data in people's real world. It was always in a contrived environment, like a doctor's office. And it was a very one-off values rather than, you know, a continuous uh, uh, high-frequency uh, capture of data. So that's a that's a valuable a metric that we have little insight of what is normal for a person. Uh, and that's just an exemplar of the problem that you're alluding to. So is it your hope that devices like, you know, the Apple Watch can do its, can detect your pulse? Is your hope that through these sort of passive data collection, like wearables, that we're going to start collecting that data on a systematic basis and use it? Is that what you Absolutely. think is going to happen? No, I, I think that's really where we're headed. I mean, for the first time, we'll have real world data at scale, which is uh, going to be easy to collect. And it'll give us a whole new insight about what is normal. Right now, you know, hypertension, since I use that example, is the number one chronic disease of man. Uh, just in the U.S., we have over 75 million people with high blood pressure, the majority of whom uh, are not getting good management of that blood pressure. And all sorts of medications are being thrown at them. So this will give us an opportunity to get a rebooting of that number one chronic condition. And it's just a matter of, you know, getting people to have a seamless high frequency collection uh, of their measurements. So that will be the front runner for many others. You, you mentioned heart rhythm. You know, we, we're going to get a much better handle on abnormalities of heart rhythm in the general population. So not only are we going to learn at the individual level, pulling a lot of data together to help manage a condition, conditions or prevent them, you're getting at the other big goal, which is to understand human beings at, at, a, at a much broader level. Um, so, yeah, the opportunities you get from sensors, as well as the ability for the analytics of that data, uh, give us whole new uh, ways to get at uh, things we didn't understand previously. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to be that long before you'll have a spoon that'll every bite of food you take, it'll, it'll know what the caloric content and the, uh, what vitamins and nutrients are in it, the pan that detects botulism. The, I mean, we have all the, all, all that kind of stuff I think is, is more than, uh, is much closer than, than one might guess. So the third leading cause, cause, cause of death in the United States is, you know, medical error. And so do you think that AI is a path out of that? Because that's a, embarrassing statistic, isn't it? Uh, the error in medicine today is terribly embarrassing. 12 million serious errors uh, a year. Uh, the fact that, you know, scans, medical scans, which are used so um, importantly in assessing people, 30% false negatives, that is missed things on scans. I mean, we can go through every aspect of medical practice today and it's an error-laden problem. Uh, 
So the hope is that that's really the sweet spot of AI. It has the ability through deep learning uh, training machines to not miss things on scans, to uh, do a far better job of uh, processing a person's data to get to a more accurate diagnosis quickly. So there's a lot of promise. I mean, well, you know, a lot of this is still uh, the promise without the proof uh, points, but at least we have a, uh, a setup now where, uh, which we didn't have before, of a way to get out of this uh, high frequency of errors, which uh, are far more than what people are generally uh, 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 aware of. You know, in the U.S., we spend something like 18% of GDP on, on our medical care. Um, West, other Western nations maybe spend half that much. Paint me a picture on how AI can reduce the, the amount we're, we're spending on medical care without, of course, compromising quality. Well, the opportunities are, are almost limitless. Uh, in the longer term, we can get rid of hospitals because um, hospital rooms, that is, not the, there will still be a place for uh, emergency rooms, operating rooms, and intensive care units. But the regular rest of the hospital rooms could be in a patient's home. I mean, just last week, a device that captures uh, vital signs continuously uh, was approved by the FDA with AI um, uh, diagnostics to predict a person's um, a potential uh, complication. So that's already approved for the home today in 2019. And hospitals uh, are one third almost of the healthcare U.S. budget a year, well over a trillion dollars. If we can gut hospitals of the hospital rooms, we can we can get people in their home. Uh, less staffing is required. Data plans can be given to patients for the cost of one day in a hospital. So uh, that's one far-reaching opportunity that would be uh, enormous once we get there, and we will get there. Um, but more near term, the fact that productivity, efficiency, workflow can be greatly ameliorated. So examples there are we already have seen that you can read scans much more quickly, accurately, uh, before the radiologist takes a look at them, or pathology slides, or for dermatologists, skin lesions, or for gastroenterologists to diagnose colon polyps that otherwise would be missed using machine vision. So, so many things that uh, are being done today that have patterns that are images or uh, image-like uh, can be processed. And that reduces um, the cost of professional services the other part, of course, is the back office operations, the people that do uh, chart abstracts, coding, billing, and all these activities that could be reduced because a lot of this could be done through algorithms. So it, there's lots of different ways you get at this where the common thread is by having uh, machines trained to do things that either humans can do, but they don't do very well or can't even see or do, which is what we've seen in some examples, this gives a tremendous potential for economic uh, savings. You know, there are limits, it seems, to what we would want AIs to do. Like, nobody wants to get a postcard in the mail. Uh, you know, our, the AI has detected you have cancer. Please report at 8 a.m. Monday morning for surgery, right? Like, nobody, nobody, wants, nobody wants that. Um, and so it seems like that aspect of delivering news and helping people cope with it uh, is a very human thing. 
And how good are doctors now at that? And, and will that become a bigger part of the training as more of the diagnostic work uh, is, is maybe removed from the job? Well, I get a lot into that in Deep Medicine in the book, uh, the point being that we're not really selecting doctors now the way um, things are changing, where it's still today we focus on brainiacs with the highest uh, grade point averages in college and the highest scores on their medical college admission tests, whereas we should be looking for those with the highest level of emotional intelligence, uh, the best uh, people for compassion and, and uh, empathy communicative skills, these sorts of things, because they're going to become much more emphasized when you can outsource a lot of the functions today uh, to um, the support, the augmentation by machines. So that's a big trend that hasn't started yet, but it will. But, uh, you know, you're getting at the other point, which is the, you know, back to the future, where we can have doctors who today are largely burnt out have a, a very significant proportion have depression. Most of them are advising their kids don't go into healthcare and medicine because it's so uh, burdensome and you don't get to execute the mission of caring for other people. We can get back to a point where it used to be the profession used to be, which was uh, the human touch, uh, the human factor, uh, the connection. That is achievable given the support that is coming. So the book is Deep Medicine. Who did you write it? Who, what reader did you have in mind when you were writing it? Who do you hope reads the book? And what would they do? I, I, well, I hope everyone will read it. But uh, realistically, uh, people who are either in the healthcare field, in the AI uh, tech field, computer scientists that, that want to work in this space because there probably can't be any area that would benefit more of all the different sectors than healthcare. Uh, and also uh, patients. We're all going to be patients one day or another, if not have already that's occurred. And so if you know what's coming, it gives hope. It gives hope that today's fractured, uh, you know, chaotic, uh, unsettling intersections with our healthcare don't necessarily have to persist over time. And uh, I lay out the blueprints in the book for how we can get to a, a far better state. And it turned out that that was achievable in the past, and we have the opportunity to get back there again. So it looks like we're coming up on time. I'll ask one last question. You know, you, you, you say it looks like we'll have the opportunity to get back there again. And, and you offer other kind of qualified statements about what's possible in the future. But in the end, how optimistic are you that this is what will happen? Well, I tend to be an optimistic person. Um, and most of the things that I've tried to project, like in prior books, the digital transformation of medicine and creative destruction and the democratization of medicine in the patient will see you now, they've taken hold. I, I expect this will be potential um, that will be actualized. But uh, Byron, you're bringing up an important point. The increase in productivity that we're going to see that is inevitable could things make things worse. Doctors could get squeezed more than already today, and nurses and all clinicians. And if that happens, that would be a tragedy. So I'm optimistic that doctors will come together and the medical community will stand up for patients. It hasn't done so well 
in the past, but it does have a big chance now. So I'd rather, rather think of the positive side. It will take longer than it ought to, but hopefully uh, a very uh, uh, positive outcome from this new capability. All right, let's leave it there. Uh, the book is Deep Medicine, and if you're interested in the topic, it uh, looks like a great read. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much, Brian. You take care. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.